chapter 9, verses 28 through 62, verses 28 through 36. And it came to pass about eight days after these sayings, he took Peter and John and James and went up into a mountain to pray. And as he prayed, the fashion of his countenance was altered, and his raiment was white and glistening. And behold, there talked with him two men, which were Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spake of his decease, which should be accomplished at Jerusalem. But Peter and they that were with him were heavy with sleep, and when they were awake, they saw his glory and the two men that stood with him. And it came to pass, as they departed from him, Peter said unto Jesus, Master, it is good for us to be here, and let us make thee three tabernacles, one for thee, and one for Moses, and one for Elijah, not knowing what he said. While he thus spake, there came a cloud, and overshadowed them, and they feared as they entered into the cloud. And there came a voice out of the cloud, saying, This is my beloved Son, hear him. And when the voice was passed, Jesus was found alone, and they kept it close, and told no man in those days of any of those things which they had seen. Burkett notes, Here we have recorded the history of our Holy Savior's transfiguration, when he laid, as it were, the garments of our frail humanity aside for a little season, and put on the robes of his divine glory to demonstrate and testify the truth of his divinity. For his divine glory was an evidence of his divine nature, and also an emblem of that glory which he and his disciples and all his faithful servants and followers shall enjoy together in heaven. Observe one, the design of our Savior in this, his transfiguration, namely to confirm his disciples' faith in the truth of his divine nature. He was therefore pleased to suffer the rays of his divinity to dart forth before their eyes, so far as they were able to bear it. His face shined with a pleasing brightness, and his raiment with such a glorious luster as did at once both delight and dazzle the eyes of his disciples. Observe, too, the choice which our Savior makes of the witnesses of his transfiguration, his three disciples, Peter, James, and John. But why disciples? Why three disciples? And why these three? One, why disciples? Because his transfiguration was a type of heaven. Christ vouchsafes, therefore, the earnest and first fruits of that glory only to the saints upon earth, on whom he intended to bestow the full crop in due time. 2. Why three disciples? Because these were sufficient to witness the truth of this miracle. Judas was unworthy of this favor, yet lest he should murmur or be discontented, others are left out as well as he. 3. But why these three rather than others? Probably, one, because these three were more eminent for great zeal and love towards Christ. Now the most eminent manifestations of glory are made to those that are most excelling in grace. Two, because these three disciples were to be witnesses of Christ's agony and passion, to prepare them for which they are here made witnesses of his transfiguration. This glorious vision upon Mount Tabor fitted them to abide the terror of Mount Calvary. Observe 3. The glorious attendance upon our Savior at his transfiguration. They were two. Those two men. Those two men, Moses and Elijah. This being but a glimpse of heaven's glory and not a full manifestation of it, only two of the glorified saints attended it. 
and these two attendants were not two angels, but two men, because men were more nearly concerned than angels in what was done. But why Moses and Eliza, rather than any other men? One, because Moses was the giver of the law, and Elijah the chief of the prophets. Now both these attending upon Christ did show the consent of the law and the prophets with Christ, and their accomplishment and fulfilling in him. Two, because these two men were the most laborious servants of Christ. Both had ventured their lives in God's cause, and therefore were highly honored by him. For those that honor him, he will honor. Observe four, the carriage and behavior of the disciples upon this great occasion. One, they supplicate Jesus. They do not pray to Moses or Elijah, but to Christ. Master, it is good being here. Oh, what a ravishing comfort and satisfaction is the communion and fellowship of the saints. But the presence of Christ among them renders their joy transporting. Two, they proffer their service to further the continuance of what they enjoy. Let us make three tabernacles. Saints will stick at no cost or pains for the enjoyment of Christ's presence and his people's company. Learn hence that a glimpse of heaven's glory is sufficient to raise his soul into ecstasy and to make it out of love with worldly company. Two, that we are apt to desire more of heaven upon earth than God will allow us. We would have the heavenly glory come down to us, but are not willing, by death, to go up to that. Observe five, how a cloud was put before the disciples' eyes when the divine glory was manifested to them, partly to ally the luster and resplendency of that glory which they were swallowed up with, The glory of heaven is insupportable in this imperfect state. We cannot bear it unveiled. And partly did this cloud come to hinder their looking and prying further into this glory. We must be content to behold God through a cloud darkly here. Ere long we shall see him face to face. Observe 6. The testimony given out of the cloud by God the Father concerning Jesus Christ, his Son. This is my beloved Son. Hear him. Where note, 1. The dignity of his person. This is my son. For nature, coessential. For duration, coeternal with his father. 2. The endearedness of his relation. He is my beloved son, because of his conformity to me and compliance with me. Likeness is the cause of love, and a union or harmony of wills causes a mutual endearing of affection. 3. The authority of his doctrine. Hear ye him. Not Moses and Elijah, who were servants, but Christ, my Son, whom I have authorized and appointed to be the great prophet and teacher of my church. Therefore adore him as my Son, and believe in him as your Savior, and hear him as your lawgiver. The obedient ear honors Christ more than either the gazing eye, the adoring knee, or the applauding tongue. Verses 37-42 through And it came to pass that on the next day, when they were come down from the hill, much people met him. And behold, a man of the company cried out, saying, Master, I beseech thee, look upon my son, for he is my only child. And lo, a spirit taketh him, and suddenly crieth out, and it teareth him, that he foameth again, and bruising him, hardly departeth from him. And I besought thy disciples to cast him out, and they could not. And Jesus, answering, said, O faithless and perverse generation, how long shall I be with you and suffer you? Bring thy son hither. And as he was yet a-coming, the devil threw him down and tear him, 
And Jesus rebuked the unclean spirit and healed the child and delivered him again to his father. Burkett notes, Observe here, 1. The person brought to Christ for help and healing. One bodily possessed by Satan, who rent and tore him, but rather to torment than to dispatch him. Oh, how does Satan delight to do hurt to the bodies, as well as the souls of mankind. Lord, abate his power, since his malice will not be abated. Observe, too, the person who represented his sad condition to our Savior, his compassionate Father, who kneeled down and cried out, Need will make a person both humble and eloquent. Everyone has a tongue to speak for himself. Happy he that keeps a tongue for others. Observe three, the physicians which this distressed person is brought unto, first to the disciples and then to Jesus. We never apply ourselves importunately to the God of power till we despair of the creature's help. But what hindered the disciples that they could not cast out this evil spirit? Why, it was their unbelief. O faithless generation! Learn thence that the great obstacle and obstruction of all blessings, both spiritual and temporal, coming to us, is our wretched infidelity and unbelief. Observe 4. The sovereign power and absolute authority which Christ had when on earth over the devil and his angels. Jesus rebuked him, cast him out, and charged him to return no more into him. This was a proof and demonstration of the Godhead of our Savior, that in his own name, that by his own power and authority, he could and did cast the devils out. Verses 43 through 45. And they were all amazed at the mighty power of God. But while they wondered every one at all the things which Jesus did, he said unto his disciples, Let these sayings sink down into your ears. For the Son of Man shall be delivered into the hands of men. But they understood not this saying, and it was hid from them, and they perceived it not, and they feared to ask him of that saying. Burkett notes, Observable it is how frequently our Savior forewarned his disciples of his approaching sufferings, and as the time of his suffering drew nearer, he did more frequently warn them of his death. But all this was little enough to arm them against the scandal of the cross and to reconcile them to the thoughts of his suffering condition. How an ordinary prophet should be delivered into the hands of men, they could easily understand. But how the Messiah should be so treated, they could not apprehend. For the disciples had taken up the common opinion that the Messiah was to be a temporal prince, and should conquer and reign here upon earth. And how to reconcile this with being killed, they could no way apprehend. And they were afraid to be too particular in their inquiries about it. Now, from Christ's so frequent warning his disciples of his approaching sufferings, we may gather that we can never hear, either too often or too much, of the doctrine of the cross, nor to be too frequently instructed in our duty to prepare for a suffering state. As Christ went from his cross to his crown, from a state of abasement to a state of exaltation, so must all his disciples and followers expect likewise. Verses 46 through 48. Then there arose reasoning among them, which of them should be greatest. And Jesus, perceiving the thought of their heart, took a child and set him by him, and said unto them, Whosoever shall receive this child in my name receiveth me, and whosoever shall receive me receiveth him that sent me. For he that is least among you all, the same shall be great. Burkett notes, It may justly seem a wonder 
that when our blessed Savior discoursed so frequently with his disciples about his sufferings, that they should at that time be disputing amongst themselves about precedency and preeminency, which of them should be the greatest, the first in place, and the highest in dignity and honor. But from this instance we may learn that the holiest and best of men are too prone to ambition, ready to catch at the bait of honor, to effect a precedency before and superiority over others. Here the apostles themselves were touched with the itch of ambition. To cure this, our Savior sets before them a little child as the proper emblem of humility, showing that they ought to be as free from pride and ambition as a young child, which affects nothing of precedency. Such as are of the highest eminency in the church ought to be singularly adorned with the grace of humility, looking upon themselves as lying under the greatest obligation to be the most eminently useful and serviceable to the church's good. Verses 49 and 50. And John answered and said, Master, we saw one casting out devils in thy name, and we forbade him, because he followeth not with us. And Jesus said unto him, Forbid him not, for he that is not against us is for us. Burkett notes, Here, one, St. John's relation of a matter of fact to our Savior, namely his forbidding one to cast out devils in Christ's name that did not follow Christ as they did. For though only the disciples which followed Christ had a commission to work miracles, yet were there others, no enemies to Christ, who in imitation of his disciples did attempt to do the like. And God was pleased for the honor of his Son, in whose name they cast out devils, to give them sometimes success. Observe, too, the action of the disciples towards this person. We forbade him, because he followed not with us, whereas observable their rashness in forbidding him of their own heads before they had consulted Christ about it, and their envy and emulation in that they were grieved and discontented that good was done, but that they did not do it. It's as hard a matter to look upon the gifts of others without envy as to look upon our own without pride. Observe 3. Our Savior's reply, forbid him not, because our Savior knew that this action of casting out devils in his name would some ways redound to his glory, although he undertook the matter without direction from Christ. We ought not to censure and condemn those who do that which is good in itself, though they fail in the manner of their doing it. Verse 51. And it came to pass, when the time was come that he should be received up, he steadfastly set his face to go to Jerusalem. Burkett notes, The time now drew on, wherein our Savior was to be received up into heaven, and accordingly he sets his face to go to Jerusalem, that he might suffer there, and from thence ascend. Now here we have observable, 1. That although Jerusalem was the nest of his enemies, the stage upon which his bloody sufferings were to be acted, the fatal place of his death, yet nothing terrified with danger, he sets his face for Jerusalem, that is, come what will, he will go with an invincible courage and resolution. Learn thence that although Christ had a perfect and exact knowledge of all the bitter suffering he was to undergo, for and on behalf of his members, yet did it not in the least dishearten him in or discourage him from that great and glorious undertaking. Observe, too, that though Christ was first to suffer before he ascended, and to be lifted up upon the cross before received up into heaven, yet is there no mention of his death here, but of his ascension only, as if all thoughts of death were swallowed up in his victory over death. 
teaching us by his example to overlook our sufferings and death as not worthy to be named or mentioned with that glory which we are received into after death. The evangelist does not say the time was come when he should suffer, but when he should be received up. Verses 52 and 53. And sent messengers before his face, and they went and entered into a village of the Samaritans to make ready for him, and they did not receive him because his face was as though he would go to Jerusalem. Burkett notes, Our Savior was now going from Galilee to Jerusalem, and being to pass through a village of Samaria, he sent messengers before him to prepare entertainment for him. The Son of God, who was heir of all things, sends to and sues for a lodging in a Samaritan village, in a Samaritan cottage. O blessed Savior, how can we be abased enough for thee, who thus neglected thyself for us? It was thy pleasure to appear, not in the figure of a prince, but in the form of a servant. Yet the people in the Samaritan village would not receive him. Strange to hear the Son of God sue for a lodging and be denied. But the reason was the difference of religion between the Jews and Samaritans. The Jews worshipped at the temple in Jerusalem. The Samaritans had a temple of their own, built upon Mount Jerusalem. Upon the building of this new temple, there arose so great a feud between the Jews and the Samaritans, and in the process of time such an implacable hatred that they would not show a common civility to one another. The Samaritans' bread to a Jew was no better than swine's flesh. They would rather thirst than drink a draught of Samaritan water. Hence we learn that no enmity is so desperate as that which arises from matters of religion. Verse 54. And when his disciples, James and John, saw this, they said, Lord, wilt thou that we command fire to come down from heaven and consume them, even as Elijah did? Burkett notes, Observe here, 1. The crime which these men were guilty of. No affront must be accounted little, no indignity light that is offered to the Son of God. But these Samaritans did not revile Christ, nor any of his retinue that we read of. They did not violently assault him. They did not follow him with stones in their hands or blasphemies in their mouths. But the wrong and injury was only negative. They received him not. They denied him a night's lodging, and this not out of any dislike of his person, but from an antipathy against his nation. Observe, too, the carriage of our disciples upon this occasion. It was thus far commendable that from the endeared love which they bore of their master, they did highly resent the curlish denial of an act of kindness towards him. A gracious heart is wholly impatient at the sight of an indignity offered to Christ. But their fault was that they were too far transported with passion and revenge, even to desire the death and destruction of the uncivil Samaritans. Wilt thou that we command fire to come down from heaven and consume them? They do not say, Master, will it please thee, who art Lord of the creature, to command fire to come down? Nor did they say, If it be thy pleasure, command us to call down fire. But wilt thou that we command fire? This savors too much of pride, cruelty, and revenge. So dangerous is a misguided zeal. Verses 55 and 56. But he turned and rebuked them, and said, Ye know not what manner of spirit you are of. For the Son of Man has not come to destroy men's lives, but to save them. And they went to another village. Burkett notes, Here we have our Savior's censure of the rash and hot motion of his disciples, which proceeded first from ignorance of themselves, 
ye know not of what spirit ye are of. Ye are not now under the rough and sour dispensation of the law, but under the calm and gentle institution of the gospel, which designs universal love, peace, and goodwill to all mankind. Hence learn, first, that a cruel and revengeful spirit is directly contrary to the design and temper of Christianity. Secondly, that no difference in religion, no pretense of zeal to God, can warrant and justify such a spirit and temper. Again, this rashness in the disciples proceeded from their ignorance of Christ their Lord and Master, as well as of themselves. The Son of Man did not come to destroy men's lives, but to save them. That is, the proper intent and design of my coming was to save and not destroy, though the accidental event of it may be otherwise through the malice and perversity of men. Learn that it was the design of Christ and his holy religion to discountenance all fierceness, rage, and cruelty in men, one towards another, and to inspire them universally with a spirit of love and unity. Christ is so far from allowing us to persecute them that hate us, that he forbids us to hate them that persecute us. Verses 57 and 58. And it came to pass, that as they went away, a certain man said unto him, Lord, I will follow thee whithersoever thou goest. And Jesus said unto him, Foxes have holes, and the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man hath not where to lay his head. Burkett notes, Observe here, 1. A person resolving to follow Christ, a good resolution, if made deliberately and wisely, not for sinister ends or secular advantages, which it is to be feared was the case here, by our Savior's answer. For, says he, foxes have holes, and the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man hath not where to lay his head. As if Christ had said, My condition in the world is very poor. I have no house of residence that I call my own. The birds of the air have their fixed nests, and the beasts of the earth have their dens and holes. But I have no fixed habitation. Therefore, if you think to follow me for the sake of worldly advantage, you will find yourself greatly disappointed. Learn hence that such men will find themselves miserably mistaken and greatly disappointed who expect to gain anything by following of Christ but their soul's salvation. It was a common opinion amongst the Jews that the disciples of the Messiah should get wealth and honor by following him. Tis likely what this person said proceeded from this opinion. Accordingly, Christ discourages him from such expectation by laying before him his mean, poor, and low condition, in which he was to be followed by his disciples, as if Christ had said, If you expect temporal advantages by following of me, you will be much mistaken, for I have nothing I can call my own. Verses 59 and 60. And he said unto another, Follow me. But he said, Lord, suffer me first to go and bury my father. Jesus said unto him, Let the dead bury their dead but go thou and preach the kingdom of God. Burkett notes, We are not to suppose by this prohibition that Christ disallows or disapproves of any civil office from one person to another, much less of a child to a parent, either living or dying. But he lets us know, one, that no office of love and service to man must be preferred before our duty to God, to whom we owe our first and chief obedience. Two, that lawful and decent offices become sinful when they hinder greater duties. That such as are called by Christ to preach the gospel must mind that alone and leave inferior duties to inferior persons. 
as if Christ had said, Others will serve well enough to bury the dead, but thou that art called to minister unto God must do that unto which thou art called. Under the law, priests might not come near a dead corpse, nor meddle with the interment of their own parents, unto which our Savior here probably alludes. Verses 61 and 62. And another also said, Lord, I will follow thee, but let me first go and bid them farewell, which are at home at my house. And Jesus said unto him, No man, having put his hand to the plow and looking back, is fit for the kingdom of God. Burkett notes, Here we have another person that promises to follow Christ, but desireth to leave first to settle the affairs of his family and to take leave of his friends. Our Savior tells him, if he would be one of his ministers, he must be like a plowman who looks forward and not backward, or he will never make his furrows right. They will either be too deep or too narrow. He must mind his plow and nothing else. Thus must they that are called to the work of the ministry mind it wholly, attend to that alone. Their whole time, their whole strength must be devoted to it. The things of the world are things behind them. They must not look back upon them. Nothing can justify a minister concerning himself with the encumbrances of worldly business, but only perfect necessity for the support of himself and his family. Again, plowing is hard work. A strong and steady hand is required for it. He that plows must keep on, and make no balks of the hardest ground he meets with. Verily, no difficulties must discourage either ministers or people in the way of their duty.